Hello and welcome to the Red Olive Fibonacci podcast, the show all about the brilliant world of data covering future trends and topical tech. We'll be joined by experts in the data sphere to share their opinions and advice. I'm your host, Nikki Rudd. Today, we're going to pick up our conversation with Robin Hayden, a data expert who has spent the last 20 years at the cutting edge of the industry. In part one, we chatted about crypto, AI, data ethics, the best way to use the cloud, how to run a data project, and much more. If you haven't heard it yet, make sure you download it now and subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss any future episodes. In part two, Robin gives the benefit of his vast experience and talks about how close to the bleeding edge you should be and the skills that people should work on if they want to get ahead in the industry. So let's go. Have you got any particular learnings that you can share for someone thinking about or rethinking their data strategy? Before they start out, what should they consider? It's quite tough because it's so context sensitive. And obviously, if, you haven't, if you're not on the cloud, well, then you, you, you are behind now. So you need to be on the cloud. <laughs> so you need to get there. I, I, I would say I'm always of the mindset that you should try and stay sort of not quite bleeding edge, but you shouldn't be far behind the leading edge. I think there's a lot of organizations that are quite happy to wait a long time. I started in this internet world and it was very exciting. And then I remember at some point getting bought out by telcos and they were quite um, conservative in the sense that at the time there was things like voice over IP was a big thing because it was all these traditional voice networks. And they, they were, but they were so hesitant to, they had great margins on their products. They had great margins on voice on text. The actual data rates for things like text were unbelievable. And so they were never really incentivized to cannibalize their own products. But then they also really bemoaned this thing that they always used to talk about these over-the-top products. Like all these people are coming in, like they were stealing their value sort of things, right? And they, they were getting pushed down to just become this utility. But in some sense, they were making that happen. They were making that happen because they were too conservative. And I think a lot of businesses make that mistake. I'm not suggesting people should go out and just be bold and just to sort of move fast and break things all the time. I always use this analogy of a fighter pilot and a, a fighter plane and a and a Boeing. So fighter planes, they sometimes design them to be aerodynamically and unstable because it allows them to move really quickly. So smaller organizations can be like that, but you don't build a, a Boeing, a big sort of commercial airliner the same way because they have to be stable in the air with lots of people. So there is some, a big organization needs to be a bit more mindful of process and that sort of thing. But I think you need to not be shy to just be a few years behind some of the leading edge stuff. So an example in, in the data space now is we're getting event-driven everything. And for a lot of technologists, that's, yeah, okay, it's, yeah, we should just be event-driven. But a lot of organizations, a lot of data organizations are still, st- still in the past. They're still talking about things like we had ETL, which was a very old way of doing things and you did all your processing and then you put it in a database. Then you had ELT, which is better. So where you take, you say, oh, I've got this big database, I can take my data, put it in the big database and use the power of that to do the processing. A lot of people are still talking about that as if that's, okay, that's the more, that's the future. And that's what well, that's already becoming the past. We've already got things that now are, are starting to do a lot of processing on stream. And you've got like, uh, Kafka's got KSQL and things like Flink over 
over Kinesis and, and or you can use things like Spark over streams. But I think you just need to think differently and think, okay, I'm going to, if I can count something in a database, you can usually reframe that problem. I can count, oh, this is a simple one, but there's a lot of other more complex examples. But if you're going to do an, a daily aggregate of, let's say, sales, actually, you could on the stream just listen to those as they go by and, and update the counter and, and publish that whenever it's necessary. So that's an example of pulling your logic all the way back onto a stream. Now, why is that better? ELT or something else. It's better because you're pulling all your... You, we've had people that put logic, say, in, in reporting systems. When you do that, you can't reuse that for your products. You can't reuse that intelligence in other feeds, in making your actual, say, user experience more, more pleasant or something. It's only people in your organization can look at it. You have to go and replicate that logic in your product somewhere. So you have to do twice the work if you want that same thing to happen. So you can bring it in two places. So you can bring that back and you can put it in your big database. And then it's, it's a little bit better because more people can use it, but you still have to break out of your normal development process and go and fetch something from the warehouse. If all of these products are just producing streams and just one of the things that are producing streams is the thing that's sitting over the top, listening, producing its outputs that eventually do get pushed either you know, back into a stream and then into a big database somewhere, then it's available for reporting and all the rest, but it's also available to anyone who's listening to that stream to mix and match to create new products. So that's one, one aspect is don't be afraid. To, some of these concepts are not new, they're, but they're not that many years old. They're still new. Most people aren't 100% there yet. I think you should adopt those things. As soon as they look like they're partially stable, you should adopt them and you should go all in because, you'll, because you will be more efficient and it'll give you a little bit of an advantage. You'll achieve that efficiency just before some of your competitors do. Other things in this space, of course, is I think that this is a bit of a harder one to express, but... I think pe people really do have to get comfortable with this idea that we have reached the point where I think the next decade is about intelligent products. It's not just about intelligent products. It's highly distributed products, as we see that's coming up in things like the crypto space and other things as well. But certainly the products we build now, the, the noughties was, was big data started emerging. So it was like an infrastructural layer, if you like. Then over the last decade, you've had this maturing of the machine learning space. And you've got a lot of high profile. I mean, Google played Go and beat the world champion. And the first sort of signs of kind of self-driving cars and things, there's a lot of kind of hype around that. But it has really matured over the last 10 years. These algorithms and stuff, are you're getting automail and all these things that are happening. And a lot of these products that are available just as a service, intelligent services to do everything from kind of sentiment analysis to image recognition and all sorts of other things. There's, there's all these kind of intelligent services starting to emerge. And I think Understanding that and seeing data not as something which you do in reports, but that actually the next 10 years is actually about the whole product experience is going to become much, much smarter. And you need to think in that way. Think about how you're fully integrating your intelligence into your whole product flow. If you're still thinking about intelligence as something you do in a warehouse and on a lake, and that goes into reporting somewhere, you're not going to win this battle. That's not you know how the stuff's going to pay you back. You have to think about how are you integrating you know, your machine learning models into your products. And just like any other any other sort of software development process, you should also continually ask yourself, well, should we build it all? I think there's a subset of things that will be key core competencies that you will build. There's a lot of sort of intelligent services that are starting to arise now that maybe they're not core competencies and you should just buy them. Or even if it is a core competency, if somebody's actually just able to do it much better than you, then it's, there's no point holding on to it. You have to pick your battles as well. But that mindset of move things further back, processing further back, all the way into streams if you can, so more people have access to the data. The reports will not go away. They're very important. People will always want to know, and maybe we'll consume them as I don't know, in different ways. It won't just be visual reports, maybe many other things in the future. But feeding back that information to people is always going to be an important thing. But 
it's really important not to get stuck in the past where data has traditionally always been used as a, just a sort of a thing you give to people and then, and then they go and write code or then they go and do things with it in the business. I think you have to think now in terms of how are we driving our all of our decisions within our products and all of our experiences with that intelligence directly. I think that's just where we are. And if you don't understand it now, you, you're going to fall behind this business. It seems to me that's a, a whole different way of thinking perhaps for a future generation coming into this data space. Are there any particular key skills that you think anybody entering the industry should really have as a kind of, we'll help them out. <laughs> Somebody, we've obviously had a really difficult year and uh, I'm sure there are a lot of people who haven't managed to do as much kind of work experience and all the rest of it as they normally would have done. But if you're trying to get into the data industry now, what would you recommend there's these different paths. There's the sort of data engineering path. There's the machine learning path. And you do get to people who still just become very good reporting people or analysts or something. So I think first you have to decide what your ambition is and how far up the stack or you, you, you want to land. Some people do just, I remember working with a really good architect who I thought he, he was just wonderful with people. Everyone really liked him. And, and I asked him if he you know, if he'd, if he'd be interested in a sort of management role and he wasn't interested at all. So I think uh, it actually impressed me when he, because he was just like, he's, you know, he's very happy with what he's doing. And I think if you, if you can first understand what am I aiming for? Am I trying to be a CDO? Am I trying to be a CTO? Am I trying to, where, where do I want to go with this? And that to some degree might determine your direction. But certainly the other bit is what are your interests? If you just, you know, like analyzing the world, for example, you may not need to be a brilliant engineer and all the rest. I think there's still plenty of room for for really good analysts, for people who just have a mathematical mindset, but perhaps are just, you know, they just don't, they don't want to spend their, all their life doing code and that sort of thing. They just, and they may actually end up, you could start as an analyst and move into commercial roles eventually. I think if you're in the data engineering space, I think all the traditional things, you have to be aware of warehouses and lakes and to be very good at SQL and be familiar with ETL and ELT really and that sort of thing. I think that's kind of table stakes. So if you don't know that stuff, it's probably, it, it's important to learn it. And there's tons of courses and stuff these days, so it's not hard to learn. But I would say that's probably, it is just table stakes. You can't really call yourself a good data engineer these days if, if all you do is, is SQL, for example. I think you have to be good at, at something else, at Java, Scala, some functional. It could be Rust, it could be whatever. Things like Java and Scala are obviously quite big in the data space. But I think knowing things like functional the whole sort of functional paradigm works really well with data because I won't go into it now, but because of the idea of immutable data, when you're you know, distributing things, which you do large-scale distributed processing and data, then that functional thinking is very important to understand because you basically don't have to worry about things changing in multiple places in your landscape and trying to coordinate that. So the whole sort of functional paradigm, if you're, if you're in the data engineering space, I would say learn some sort of functional language or learn a language that at least allows you or something like Python as, as well. The engineering skills, getting to know things like streaming, I think that's, and understand that sort of stuff, that's going to be really important as well going forward. If in the machine learning space, again, I think the table stakes now is you have to know various different ways to do classifications, tree-based methods, and you need to know the kind of you know, core sort of neural network type stuff for the deep learning and all the rest. So I think that's kind of table stakes or you have to be, a, you have to, I think the thing to remember there as well is you still need to be quite, you need to be a little bit of a domain expert in that space to, to, to I suppose like a lot of things, if you know the domain, you still have to do a lot of analysis to build a good machine learning model to, to understand the space, to figure out what, what's going to work in your models and stuff. So I think don't, don't just go down the rabbit hole of being brilliant at, 
a sort of brilliant researcher in the machine learning space. If you want to make it in business, you probably need to understand your business if you're in that space. But things that are coming along in that space, I think that are really interesting. That might, reinforcement learning is obviously, it's been around the, the stuff that people like Google was doing some impressive stuff with it or DeepMind was doing impressive stuff with reinforcement learning a good few years back. It's starting to mature now. I would say really pay attention to reinforcement learning. A little bit earlier stage, I think, but I think it's going to become very important to the machine learning uh, community is things like uh, causal, anything causal, kind of causal inference of some sort. So we have a bit of a problem with causality. We don't often, there's a nuance point. So in the interest of time, I won't go into a lot of detail. But what happened is that machine learning basically learns from the past and, and then projects forward. And, and a lot of what we learn is we learn complex patterns. And some people say that's basically just very advanced curve fitting. There's some truth to that. Some of it's not entirely true, but there is some truth to that. And things like the pandemic have, have, have made it very obvious that we had models that were working for a long time. And then suddenly all the behaviors changed because everyone was suddenly at home. Lots of things changed. A lot of models just stopped working as well. And so there, when you look at things like the space where they're trying to learn think of it more like science they're trying to learn causality learn like how does the world actually work that's machine learning models don't actually learn that well but there's a lot of work going into that space and there's quite a few good things emerging in that space so i think that's probably going to become um more and more important and even when i was in the gambling space for example you didn't need a pandemic for that to become important you could see regulations coming like a year out you knew that they were going to tell you to stop using credit cards or something of that nature but the thing is you didn't have data yet dealing with that can be tricky in the machine learning space so i'd say that references that kind of philosophy i had earlier in the commercial world you can't afford to be right on the cutting edge because if i think about when google first started doing some of the papers around playing atari games and stuff for example the reinforcement learning there were many years back right and so you could have fiddled around with that sort of stuff for years and the people paying you wouldn't have been very impressed. So I think you can, there's a few places that might pay you to do that, but on the whole, in the commercial space, you still have to be aware of like the stuff that's working now that is established. But I think you always have to stretch yourself just a little bit further and say, okay, what's like just on the horizon? And I, I think reinforcement learning is, is starting to become more prominent now. And I think the causal stuff is going to become a bigger and bigger thing over, over the next sort of five-year period. So I would definitely pay attention to that. I think it's quite interesting you're saying about the fact that, because I think within sort of data, obviously people have to be good at maths and IT for working in data space, where it's all about fixed rules, if you like, but actually now it's having an understanding of that, but also having that flexibility to let your mind go and actually be brave enough to take those next steps. I don't know necessarily if those two kind of sides of the brain, I don't know, will work. Yeah, a future data scientist is thumbs well, up for both uh, sides. You do trigger an interesting point there and that is that the other thing which is emerging a lot more now is that there's a lot more automail this idea that you would automate the training process and all the rest now i still don't think we're at the point where it's fully mature and you can just throw automail at everything we used to build hierarchical models and things that they sometimes still don't do well in those AutoML systems. If you look at the history of computing, you go back to 50s, 60s, a lot of the people that were working in early computing perhaps did need to understand a lot more the detail and perhaps have to be mathematicians in the early stage. And then gradually were at least certainly much more aware of the inner workings of processes and things. And then it's got to the point where there's tons of people. I actually been doing some React stuff, some front-end stuff, which is completely, you know, outside of the world of data. There's tons of those kind of React front-end developers, for example, who they're not mathematicians at all now, right? I mean, they're, they're just people who 
enjoy coding front-end type stuff. You get good computer scientists who I think still understand you know, quite a range of things. But I would say the average developer now actually doesn't need to be, it doesn't need to be the sort of almost mathematician of the early world of, of, of computing. And I think eventually things like machine learning world, and it's obvious that everything, to, for things to be adopted at the widest possible scale, they have to be available to a very wide community. And that's where things like AutoML come along. So I, I do think we will see over time layers of this, right? You will have, just like you have the real sort of experts, you'll have a lot of people that will gradually start working in this space that may just know the business well, but maybe some of those AutoML tools and things are, are, are good enough and they don't necessarily have to be mathematicians. So yeah, it's a bit of a nuanced thing. Right now, if I was hiring a team of machine learning people, I think... I, I still expect a little bit of a, a, a mathematical head because I think there's still enough stuff in there that now you get caught out. People just make mistakes with um, like causality versus correlation and that sort of thing. There's little things and you just don't understand some of the concepts around statistics like IOD and stuff like that, which I think sometimes you make really critical mistakes. But I, I do think I'm actually always pushing my ML teams now to say, well, then why aren't we using more AutoML, and they've always got reasons why oh, it doesn't do this right, it doesn't do this right. There is a part of me that thinks, yeah, but hold on, there is a class of problems which doesn't where that stuff works. And and I think the trick is making sure you don't get caught either in this idea that actually it's back to do I need to build it all myself? Do I need to understand? Does everybody who programs need to understand how registers work in, in a processor? Absolutely not. And in fact, sometimes it's probably a handicap. So yeah, that's gonna be the I think the challenge is, is managing the sort of move from the one phase to the, to, to the next in, in that space. Yeah. It, it seems to me that there there is a real sort of process for moving forward in this sort of data space of collaboration but across sort of technologies and the storytelling or the reporting side of it, being able to actually understand what the data is actually telling you and then asking it questions of, you know, it, it being a bit more challenging. You're challenging the data to tell you more, but also then as an organization, having the priorities and the trust in your data team to actually make that a reality rather than just a, this is something that we'd like to be doing, but we're all a bit too scared to take the jump. Do you feel like that has changed and that people, particularly with cloud, that because they don't have to do that enormous sort of capex spend right up front, that actually that move is a bit more acceptable for larger organizations? I think it's few execs now would brush aside this idea that you need to be data-driven or more intelligent or something. If you, if an analyst was asking, if you're a public company and an analyst was asking you what you're doing with your data, I think few people would be comfortable saying, no, we don't think that stuff is important. So I think they've gotten a hub cycle type thing. I think we've, there's, there's, there's a portion of the hub cycle we've got over already. But yeah, I do think it's still recently working in a, in a situation where you know, I, and I won't, I won't mention names and all the rest here, but where it amazed me just how much time the the, the exec suite was, was focusing on on the app, on what the app looked like and the colors of the app and all that. And this is not to downplay this, right? Like branding and that sort of thing is quite important. And having having something that people just like the feel of and stuff is quite important. But I think it's also, I think sometimes it's also easy to do that. It's very easy because everyone understands it. I think a lot of execs are just, you know, they're people as well. They make those mistakes. They are, they have strong opinions and they carry their opinions into things. And that's why they might focus on something like an app or something because it's easy for them to kind of state that opinion. But even when they're stating that opinion, very often, unless you go out and test it and all the rest, you realize what you think is good may be terrible. And in fact, what you think is good 
is probably good for a subset of the population that is like you, which is why you should be building personalization so that the subset of the organization, you can identify the subset of the, the population that is like you and you can present it to them in that way. But it's way more important to think in that way, to think actually we need an intelligent product. We need something that adapts to all these different viewpoints. If you have a room of people disagreeing, then that means that there's several different attitudes and, and, and perspectives that you need to cater to. And the only way you're going to do that is by being very sort of intelligent centric. So I'd say that's where the probably the challenge is, is that people may say they want to be smart and they like the idea of, yeah, we're doing all the smart stuff with our product. But I think people still fall back into just doing the things they understand. So that's where I think it takes a, a little bit of bravery, probably, because you can't be good at everything. If you're a CEO, you've got an extremely wide remit and you've got so many things to look after. You can't possibly know all of this stuff. And so I think it's developing faith in the right people and saying, okay, show me what intelligence looks like and putting enough resources behind that. I think if there's a core message, it's really taking that to heart, saying, you know what, over the next five, 10 years, we're going to have a smarter product. It's not just that it looks better. It's not just, it's going to have to be much smarter than everyone else. And if you really internalize that, then you'll end up putting some budget that way. And you'll do a lot of things wrong. And the teams will, you'll get traditional teams that just go and build a big warehouse. It it, it is a difficult journey, but you're going to have to persist on that journey with this idea that the question you should be asking yourself, is my product smarter? Is that product smarter than the other guy? How is it smarter? If you keep asking that question, and even if you don't know the field, even if you're a CEO who's got a, a huge organization and can't possibly got it, you know, understand every little bit of it, but just asking that question over and over again, you'll draw people in the right direction and you'll funnel some of the resources in that direction and you might succeed. That was our conversation with Robin Hayden. Thanks very much to him for taking the time to talk to us. That's all for this episode, but we have many more fascinating interviews coming up. So make sure you subscribe so you don't miss anything. Thanks for listening. Catch up next time.